Hello, this is RCL Co-Managing Director Greg Logan. You're about to listen to my podcast interview with Jerome Russell of H.J. Russell, which was recorded earlier this year before the stay-at-home orders in effect across the country. Though the majority of this interview focuses on Mr. Russell's career, we've included a brief update at the end on how H.J. Russell is managing the challenges presented by the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, enjoy this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Stay safe and continue doing your part to help flatten the curve. Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. The show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Greg Logan, Managing Director of RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Jerome Russell, president of H.J. Russell & Company in Atlanta, Georgia. H.J. Russell & Company was founded over 60 years ago. It's a vertically integrated service provider specializing in real estate development, construction, program management, and property management. The company has made a name for itself by taking a holistic approach to effectively contribute and provide impactful service to clients. Jerome, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of our podcast series. I'm honored to be a part of it, uh, Greg. I first met you many years ago. I think uh, the first time I remember, I think we were engaged to prepare a market analysis for Gibraltar land, which of course was an H.J. Russell-owned development firm. And you were overseeing a lot of different projects, uh, urban, residential, and retail developments. And of course, I knew the firm uh, as you were, uh, as the firm is very well known for many high-profile projects in Atlanta and elsewhere in the U.S., and very respected for its active involvement in the Atlantic community. And you have had a long and successful career in real estate for over 25 years, which you know led to your current role as the lead owner of a uh, over $250 million real estate portfolio and chairman of the newly formed uh, Herman J. Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which I want to talk a little bit about uh, later on in our interview. And I understand you began to enter, uh, integrate yourself into the real estate development uh, business, starting out with Gibraltar Land. And then you were named uh, 1995. I think you became uh, president and COO of H.J. Russell, uh, focusing more on the firm's strategic direction and, and new business development. And during your tenure, the company's earnings have, have grown you know, to 20% clip annually, which is pretty impressive. And uh, you started Russell New Urban Development in 2003 to provide high-quality in-town developments to stimulate economic growth and excite people about urban living. You were early in that trend. And uh, more recently, uh, you're focusing your energies into the opening of the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, or RCIE, uh, which is an economic mobility engine, which is geared towards black entrepreneurship. And that's in your former headquarters building in the Castleberry Hill neighborhood of Atlanta. 
And I understand that in addition to serving as president of H.J. Russell & Company, that you also are active on the board of Concessions International, RCIE, which we just mentioned, the West End Community Improvement District, the Metro Atlanta YMCA, the Georgia Department of Economic Development, Georgia Historical Society, and Central Atlanta Progress. And I'm convinced you must not get a lot of sleep. Sound, sound pretty busy. <laughs> and then, of course, like many of us at RCLCO, you're an, an Urban Land Institute member and also involved in the Atlanta Chamber and, and, uh, and you're on the Board of Counselors at the Carter Center and many other things. So not letting any grass grow under your feet for sure. And of course, you're an Atlanta native and you're married to Stephanie and, and you have uh, four, four beautiful children. Maybe uh, for our listeners, you know, give a little you know, description, a brief description of your work history and, and, you know, how you came to be where you are today. Okay. All righty. Well, I'm a native Atlantan and uh, attended high school here in Atlanta. Uh, it was a prep school called Westminster School. Graduated from there and went to the University of Tennessee for one year. That didn't work out and I transferred and to Georgia State University, and I graduated from Georgia State in 1985. And as soon as I graduated from Georgia State, my father was, we were in the beer distribution business here in Atlanta. We had Coors, Strohs, Slit, I think Bex and Molson, and had a pretty viable um, operation here. And Coors offered my father the opportunity to expand in the Chicago area with the um, their introduction of Coors into Chicago. So that was my first, as soon as I graduated from college, I was on my way up to Chicago and I spent a year up there as kind of a brand manager and I was assistant to the general manager. That business did, we, we couldn't make it work like we thought it, we could make it work spent a year and a half in Chicago, and then came back to Atlanta and started working in our um, beer distributorship here in Atlanta, kind of, you know, worked my way up, became, you know, was in a leadership position there. And the beer business is a, it's a great business. It's just, you're doing the same thing every day. And at the same time, we had other businesses, ventures that we're engaged in, you know, particularly around the real estate side. So I came back start working in real estate, we had formed Gibraltar Land. That was run by a gentleman by the name of Noel Khalil. My father had brought mm-hmm. Noel in, mm-hmm. probably Noel was probably 32 years old, and mm-hmm. he set up a company called Gibraltar, and Noel had 20% of Gibraltar, and we were off and running. I fell in love with real estate on a project. I was a project manager for a hotel, kind of an extended stay hotel, called the Stratford Inn, and we also had a small retail center that we built in Atlanta, right at uh, North Avenue and Parkway. So I developed that. I just fell in love with the process of real estate, and my journey really began in, on the real estate side. I uh, spent a lot of time on the property management side. During the 90s, as we were evolving as a company, there was a slight recession in there. I, um, again, assumed more responsibility, more broader level of responsibility within the business. I formed Russell New Urban. And that's around the time when I think I met you, Greg, with, mm-hmm. we were putting together the project in the West End called Skyloft. And mm-hmm. we had about 9,000 square feet of retail square footage. And you guys did a market study. I remember so that. We were right on. 
Yeah, yeah, you was right on point with the market study. Oh, good to know. Good we, to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you were right on point. And to, we still own the this retail condos that we developed, and we still own those retail condos today. It's kind of interesting. That was a good seventeen years ago, and mm-hmm. and then I just continued on on the real estate side. You know, from the hope. You know, we were involved in the mixed income of public housing. We had multiple projects we worked on here in Atlanta and Baltimore and Tampa and some other cities. We also, we did conventional apartments. We had retail. So, I mean, we we just, over the years, we added on to our portfolio. In addition, we had a core HUD portfolio that my father had developed during the 70s. And then the, probably the last phase where we are today is in the Castleberry Hill area, where we mm-hmm. have accumulated about 40 acres of holding, some of its land and some of its existing assets that we currently own and operate from apartments to a building that has a restaurant in it. We have a hotel. And then, of course, you just mentioned that we reposition our corporate headquarters, which is in the heart of Castleberry Hill, into a innovation and entrepreneur center called the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And we're in the process of standing that up. And it's a not-for-profit initiative um, around economic mobility for African-American business formation, entrepreneurship, access to opportunity. We are also working with you all to redevelop the master planning the 40 acres for an kind of a innovation, entrepreneurial, mixed-use district we look forward to deliver in over the next 10 years. And for All people right. who don't don't know uh, Atlanta very well, Castleberry Hill, well, it's a neighborhood where you had your headquarters for many years, and now the RCIE, the, the Russell Center, is is there and emerging. And it's one of the few places that's you know very close in and represents a really cool redevelopment, revitalization opportunity that's so close to downtown with a lot of, uh, shall we say, older buildings with character in some cases. And you guys are going in there and doing both renovations of some of the, the existing older buildings and then looking at new development in a close-in neighborhood. Is that a fair way of describing yeah. it? Yeah, yes. I mean, just to give some of the listeners a Another perspective, the Castleberry Hill area is directly south of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. A half a mile south of Mercedes-Benz Stadium is one of the linear boundaries of the area. So the area has, mm-hmm. has evolved, particularly over the years. The placement of a multi-billion dollar facility really kind of helped create that. I mean, create kind of mm-hmm. that synergy. And then also we are surrounded by universities. We have several universities, the historically black colleges of Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta University, along with Morehouse School of Medicine, are all adjacent to our facility. Georgia State is within a mile of our Castleberry Hill, and Georgia Tech is about a mile and a half away. So we're very excited about the collaboration with those institutions as we enter this new digital and technological world um, that we're about to enter into over the next 10 years. 
Well, I want to ask you more about that. I want to just make an observation and ask you a little bit about just sort of, you know, how you came to have all this very strategically placed land. Of course, your company and your family is very well known in Atlanta and and you've been involved in some some high profile developments. And at the same time, there seems to be very much a commitment philosophy, if you will, of giving back to the community. And that seems to be, you know, one aspect of the the Russell Center and taking your former headquarters. And and then also, obviously, you're looking to create some successful developments in this very strategically oriented 40 acres in the Castleberry Hill neighborhood, close to the stadium and, and not far from downtown, but also looking to have an impact on, on the community. How, how do you balance your real estate activities and, and your profit orientation with what seems to be a genuine commitment to the community and, and to you know, doing well while doing good maybe as a way of looking at it? How do you, how do you, yeah. how do you balance that? How, how does the company look at that? Well, you know, it's, it's evolving. I mean, first of all, I have to start with our history. My father, when he graduated from Tuskegee in 1952, he acquired his first commercial parcel of land over in Castleberry Hill, right at 504 Fair Street to uh, set up his business. Hmm. So he had vision. My father had tremendous vision. You got to remember, this is a black man in 1952 Hmm. buying real estate right outside of downtown Atlanta. So pre-civil rights era. Yeah, pre-civil rights. So it started there, and then over the years, you know, as our business grew and as Atlanta grew as a southern city, and I mean, as you look back at the civil rights history, Atlanta was, there was always collaboration among, you know, kind of the white business establishment and the civil rights movement, and then also there was an emergence of African-American leaders like my father who were very engaged in ensuring that. Atlanta was able to get through this era in a way that wasn't, it didn't create an adversal situation mm-hmm. in the city. So after that period was over with, my father was very engaged in that. He was personal friends with Martin Luther King and a business took off in the 70s. We were able to just continue to expand. He started to buy more land over in Castleberry Hill. He accelerated that land acquisition probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he would always, he would always tell me, my brother and sisters and others, that this is going to be part of downtown one day. This is going mm-hmm. to be... Um, that was his vision. Yeah, mm-hmm. he said, this is, this is one of the best opportunities um, you're going to have mm-hmm. in front of you. And we're here. A lot of the inspiration, motivation comes from his vision, and he instilled that in the people who worked that came through H.J. Russell. You know, I, literally, I was earlier today, I interviewed Edward Perry, mm-hmm. and he shared his story with the uh, group this morning. That we, we were there, of course. I mean, I mentioned Noel earlier. You know, Noel mm-hmm. left and became a very successful entrepreneur. Chief Alice Smith, Artist Johnson, it's just a whole list of people that had been incubated out of that 504 Fair Street location. So it's a great location to create an an entrepreneurial center, right? Because you got it. It has a history of creating entrepreneurs uh, through the company and now and now as a as a more proactive community investment. So it's, it's in me. I mean, my father always was very engaged in the community. 
both mm-hmm. politically, civically, socially. So it's just in the, in our DNA to mm-hmm. do what we're doing. And, you know, we feel that naturally if you're uplifting and you're bringing others with you, the mm-hmm. the profits follow. Kind of a more, uh, hey, if we can do good, be good, that good things will eventually happen. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I am right now from a purpose-driven perspective is that's kind of where, you know, Jerome is moving, my brother and mm-hmm. sister. We all kind of have different roles that we're playing. And then we also are working on getting our our kids, which we call Generation 3 or G3, mm-hmm. engaged in the platform also. Because our view is a long-term view. And Generational. Atlanta, I was going to ask you about that. It's a, you've been a big organization, but also a family business in some ways. How do you manage that between the leadership roles between you and your brother and sister? Well, first of all, I had to give my parents, both my father and mother, you know, my father was there Mm -hmm. busy out building the business. My mother was Mm -hmm. there. She kept us grounded and the two of them would come together. And so we grew up, I mean, we didn't really grow up as privileged kids. I mean, we worked, we had all sorts of different friends. I mean, we weren't, we didn't pick our association based on social economic status, which I'm thankful for because, you know, I went to a prep school that was predominantly white, but I had the opportunity to kind of live in and out of two different worlds, a world in a African-American neighborhood in Atlanta. And then, of course, I went to school in Buckhead. So mm-hmm. we you, saw, very, you saw uh, both sides of, of Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. So that's how we were all raised. This is my brother and mm-hmm. sisters. So we get along well. Okay. And we mm-hmm. understand we're different, but we get along. And then when my father passed, everything was transferred down to the three of us equally. So we have to work together. We have to meet very frequently. We have advisors and different people that we have brought on over the last several years to work with us and to help us figure it out because mm-hmm. it is different. Instead of having one person making a decision, you really have three people making a decision. So, and it's a big, uh, big business. You've got your... Yeah. You're you're involved in a lot of different things, and I was sort of joking earlier about just the number of things you're doing between your work as president of H.J. Russell and Company and then being on, on the board of Concessions International and RC, RCIE and so forth. And I'm just you know wondering, and you know other people who may be aspiring leaders in real estate would look at that and say... So how do you prioritize your time and how do you, you know, personally, as you think about the the family enterprise, the real estate, your involvement in the community, RCIE, how do you go about prioritizing your time and thinking about, you know, which projects that that you're going to be involved in and pursue? Well, very good question. First, I plan out my year and allocate time to items that I'm going to focus on. And they normally fall in three to four buckets. This year, uh, allocating about 60% of my time to the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And that may involve, you know, the board formation, supporting the CEO who runs it. Of course, we're not-for-profit, so the development fundraising is important. So 60% there. Then I probably have another 20 to 25% on what I call our family enterprises, which 
tends mm-hmm. to center around the real estate side mm-hmm. of our business because as Michael, Taneda, and I, we run the business. I'm more the real estate person. Mm-hmm. You know, we have about 50 different real estate operating entities. So we brought on a director of asset manager. So he's worked very closely with me to help organize, you know, trend analysis on the real estate. And then since we all own it jointly, you know, we have to talk about it from a family standpoint, mm-hmm. 25% mm-hmm. there. And then the rest is really kind of the third bucket is personal development, making sure I take time out for myself, both mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And then the boards you mentioned. So the boards mm-hmm. do take time. So I probably have about five to 10% of my time on, you know, YMCA, West End CID, corporate boards, bank boards, and things like that. So I would put that at 10%. So it's kind of how I prioritize it. And then at the end of the year, we do an assessment of that and then redo it for the next year. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how you try to plan it. And it's not perfect, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm always impressed. And I appreciate that we have a chance to work together on some of these things. And I'm always impressed that, you know, I feel like when we're working together on something, it's got your Whatever it is we're doing, it has your full attention and you're, you're very calm and organized. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that he's got so many things in the air. How do you make sure you're focused on the important things? It sounds like you, you have a system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy. So you just have to really um, keep, keep yourself mm-hmm. disciplined. I think also discipline. You have to, you know, go to bed at a certain time, the time you're going to take out for yourself. So mm-hmm. for me, I take out the morning for, you know, if, whether it's working out, walking, listening to a podcast while I'm walking is mm-hmm. more time for me to, mm-hmm. to make sure I'm improving myself because I'll, everybody has room to improve. Well, thinking about your business career and real estate career over the last 10 years and then sort of looking forward into the, into the future, what are the things that have you know been the most impactful? What are some of the, the changes and trends that you've been following and, and how do you see those trends affecting your business going forward? Good question. Good question. You know, and I'm very Atlantic centric, but I do go to other cities and I see similar trends happening in other U.S. cities also. Mm-hmm. The speed at what things are happening right now is what's most amazing to me. I don't see it slowing down. I only see it speeding up. And I've noticed the speed, particularly over the last seven to eight years. Just so the speed of why, change. Yeah, the speed of change is really, really accelerating, both from a physical, from a real estate, from the vertical standpoint to uh, other aspects of decision making, the specialization in what people do, the data, the analytics that's out in the marketplace, your ability to make decisions or to obtain information to make decisions is is easily accessible and aggregated in a way that makes it easier and makes things speed up. That's one. The capital that's in the marketplace right now, when the recession, right before the recession, you know, you you could kind of borrow up to 80%. Some cases, people were doing real commercial real estate deals at 90. These were conventional deals at 90% of cost, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So now that's been replaced with equity, you know, so the banks are, the the quality of the loans are much better on the, from a balance sheet perspective of a bank, but then the equity has just, I don't know, I don't know if it's the stock market that's appreciating, but the creation of liquidity whether it's from other parts of the world, is greater than the supply. So that's driving prices up. 
Okay. So more, more capital uh, than, than good investment yeah, projects. Yeah, yeah. Cap rates, people take less on cap rates. And again, in Atlanta, I remember back in 2008, you know, when, when I was doing the Sky Loft, if there was a new project going up, you kind of, you, everybody knew what everybody was doing. It was more local developers doing the work and everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing. Right now, there's mm-hmm. so many new players here in Atlanta. There are new groups evolving, people breaking off, forming different companies. That is another piece. And these groups that are coming in, they tend to be a little more bolder in the projects. The risk taking has gone up, but it's also created a new class of enterprise value, which is creating some unintended consequences. So the thing that concerns me is the inequality of wealth and income is really starting to hit home and this uh, is becoming a crisis, in my opinion, around affordability. We're starting to see these tent cities pop up in Atlanta. That was a big discussion we had earlier this mm-hmm. morning with, you know, how do we deal with this? You know, everybody mm-hmm. says we need affordable housing, but it's really, we really have to get a comprehensive plan, including, you know, the government, you know, whether here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. municipal, state, we have to get a better definition of what affordable housing is and who's going to do it. So I think we're at a real critical, that's the thing that concerns me the most is this. Uh, Just as, as a trend, yeah, as yeah. a trend mm-hmm. that, that all of us need to be thinking about is this, this growing income and wealth disparity that's getting wider. And of course, the, the whole affordable housing and attainable housing is a challenge, I think, that's more visible in some parts of the, you know, higher cost parts of the country, but it really is, seems to be something that's affecting all communities. You're kind of in an envious position in your career in that you're involved in a lot of the for-profit activities of the firm, but you're also in more of what I'd call sort of a purpose-driven economic activity through the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. How did that idea evolve and where is that in its, in its process? I've, I, you know, seen a few things online about um, you know events happening there and so forth, but as a purpose-driven activity of, of yours and your organization, how, how did that evolve and where is that in its life? Yeah, good question. So my father passed in November of 2014. And right before he passed, we were still working out of the uh, recession. We didn't get any write-down on any loans. My father was, was very old school. He didn't really use outside equity. So he had guaranteed loans and he stood by every loan. So we had condos. We got caught with two entry level condos that literally were slashed in half in value. It was a rough time. So it was a little prolonged period for us. So we were still kind of, it took us really into about 2013 to kind of work it out because it was a uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't get any write offs and we were upside down on a lot of stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. we by right, so we had to reduce the size of our staff at H.J. Russell and Company. We had all moved into Midtown. I had moved into Midtown. Michael had moved into Midtown. I think my sister was in Midtown. We didn't need fifty four thousand square feet of space, so we decided to move. We took the fifty fifty five employees we had and we moved to a 13,000 square foot space in Atlantic Station. So the building was empty and we all, we never was gonna sell the building. And we had a couple of people come to us like, hey, we're, 
rent the building now, blah, 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 but it's not quite what we wanted. And what we recognized when we started to look outside, there was an emergence of small business people that were driving office space. It was kind of the early emergence of creative office space. It was, Mm -hmm. I think Regis was one of the concepts and there were a couple of uh, buildings in downtown that were kind of going to this co-working space. So we came back. He says, wow, well, this is this is an entrepreneur-driven um, market. Small businesses are going to be the ones that kind of create the new change. So we started looking around at other cities around these entrepreneur centers. You know, whenever I would travel, whether it's Chicago, New Orleans, New York, I just started to dive into these centers and they were fascinating. Because they mm-hmm. were setting them up, they were really cool and they were innovative and um, kind of incubators for for new businesses. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah, they were incubators. So we um, came back and I think it was a concept in New Orleans that I had visited, and they were doing this for minority businesses, real small, and they were doing a it was called Power Up, I think, and they were doing mostly they had a small co working space, but they did events. They had a big event and they had sponsors. And it was like, they were like major corporations that were sponsoring this. And then I said, wow, if they can do this in New Orleans, we can definitely do this in Atlanta. And I hired the guy as a consultant and we kind of came up with the concept. Uh, We pursued a grant from EDA and the EDA grant, we had to be a not-for-profit. So we made the decision like in 2016 to drop it into a not-for-profit. And we began the process of defining who we wanted to be. We got that, maybe we defined it maybe around 2018 and we hired a CEO. We are in the startup phase of the center. You know, we've opened it up. We have about 100 members. We've completed the build-out of the space. We need to raise another six to seven million to really get it right. And we're going to do that. We're in the process of completing that campaign. By the end of this year, we should be fully up and running. Our goal is to have about a thousand members by the end of 2025. We get support mostly from banks and corporations right now. I could just list probably 20 to 30 groups that have come in and say, hey, we love what you're doing. We want to be a part of it. And our whole theory is this. If we can create more business formation among African-Americans is one of the most effective ways to impact this inequality that's out mm-hmm. there because the quickest way to build wealth is by controlling and owning your business, which is what mm-hmm. we're all about, you know? And so mm-hmm. we are living an example of look at an integral, look at a Columbia mm-hmm. residential, look at a sure. artist Johnson, look at a T Dallas Smith. So they are all mm-hmm. engaged in this with us. They are, you know, are what mm-hmm. we call our legacy partners. And then we're going to mm-hmm. just create a kind of a 2.0, a 3.0 version of that. And um, the other thing is, is that, you know, here in Atlanta, you know, the income inequality is really, you know, broken down on racial lines there. You know, there's, it's like the, the, the income and net worth of whites versus blacks are like seven to eight and sometimes 10 times different. So there's really no poor white communities in Atlanta is just poor black communities, maybe mm-hmm. some Hispanic, but you know, Atlanta historically has been a city of African Americans and whites. So we wanna mm-hmm. we wanna create more diversity, upward diversity, particularly economic diversity in the ecosystem. So 
that's what we're trying to do. And we, 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 again, we, we're getting, you know, again, it's a, it's a heavy lift, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's what's needed. And, and it's right. And significantly, it's, it's your former headquarters building on uh, 504 Fair Street and, and it's in the Castleberry Hill community. So obviously you're, you're looking to have an impact on, on the broader Atlantic community. And I would, I would think the immediate, you know, Castleberry Hill neighborhood as well, that, you know, perhaps some of the entrepreneurs that, that come out of RCIE would, uh, would sort would expand into Castleberry Hill and, and, and beyond as a as sort of a long-term goal, perhaps. Yes, Greg. Well, you remember you, you all did the market analysis and I think that there was, Really, what opened me up to that was the need for creative office mm-hmm. in the yeah. kind of downtown area. I mean, if I'm correct, right. it was close to 200,000 square feet. So mm-hmm. I see that as clear as day now. So, mm-hmm. yes, I, I do feel that we will have that as in part of the district. Uh, Morehouse School of Madison right up the street um, is raising, um, they got a, they have a campaign to raise 100 and. $50 million around health inequality, you know, which I think is going to bring a lot of different creativity into the area. Spellman is about to do a $50 million innovation building, kind of, kind of a lab building on their campus. I think you're going to see more investments where, um, particularly with the HBCUs, where there's going to be a support around entrepreneurship, innovation, Georgia Tech. Well, you meant collaborate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. I was going to say you you mentioned the uh, some sponsorships and and RCIE and and I was going to ask you about that. You know, given that there are a number of universities and colleges around you, are are you establishing a relationship with them through some of these different programs you just mentioned to where students and, and others involved with the colleges, universities, the HBCUs, you know, around you are, are also getting involved in RCIE? Yes, absolutely. We're talking to all of them at different levels. Let, in Georgia mm-hmm. Tech, I'll use them, for example. They have a new president, and he's, I mean, he's very interested in uh, collaborating. I mean, that whole... Tech Square Village is all private sector teaming up with Georgia Tech and shabam, you see what has happened on mm-hmm. Spring Street and West Peach Street. I mean, it's it's yeah. a innovation district. I mean, who would have thought it all that has happened in the last seven years? Mm-hmm. In the last seven years. Yeah, it's pretty so, oh, it's major. And it's accelerating. They're gonna run out of land. We, Come on we, down we, to Castleberry we, Hill, you have some land you can sell them, right? <laughs> correct. And then on top of that, you have, yeah, as it relates to Castleberry Hill, we have the CIM project, which is called Centennial mm-hmm. Yard. The first phase of that will be right behind the Norfolk Southern buildings that they sold. So that literally backs up into Castleberry Hill. We did not know when they came. We thought that their the first phase would be more over near, near State Farm Arena. But the uh-huh. first phase of Centennial Yards is going to be south. So we're very excited about that whole area of South downtown with Castleberry Hill being one of the districts. What makes you uh, optimistic about the future of real estate in Atlanta and, and elsewhere? What are, are there some, some positive trends you're following? Obviously you're, you're very invested in real estate. So I would assume you also have some uh, optimism about the opportunities there. Well, I think we have to do has collaboration. You know, the city of Atlanta is only what 550,000 people. 
Um, I think it's like 17 percent of the region. Yeah. Yeah, 17 percent. So we have agencies out there and the Atlanta Regional Commission. We all have to do a better job in collaborating. That's mm-hmm. everyone, public, the politicians, the corporations, all of the special interests, both private and, and public. We have to come together with a you know just a better plan because the the airport here, which is a huge economic engine, and the institution, a lot of the enterprise value is moving into the core, okay, which is making the city more expensive. It's a different type of problem than we had 50, 60 years ago. There are more people, there are more groups out there. The demographics are changing very rapidly in the uh, these big counties like Gwinnett, DeKalb, Cobb, et cetera. We have an urban-suburban type of development going on in these areas. The, of course, congestion is becoming very, very problematic. I mean, I live in, I live in the heart of the city. I live in um, Midtown. And mm-hmm. each year, even moving around in the city is becoming difficult. I avoid going anywhere on the interstate at certain times. I mean, you know what times mm-hmm. those are. I don't want to get yeah. caught out there. And then we're going to have to deal with the income inequality. And mm-hmm. you know, we had this discussion this morning. And the word community development came up. And community development mm-hmm. basically is defined that we have to be able to coexist. We all have to coexist in these social economic environments. The market forces don't have, Market forces are economically driven. So mm-hmm. it, that's where the public sector is going to have to come in with smart policy to deal with maintaining the economic balance because uh, affordable housing, depending on how you define it, is it's very expensive because it's counter to the market forces or capitalism. It's something we've got to get our hands around because it will become, you're, gonna, you're starting to see more tent cities. And you'll start to see other little things start to creep into what's going on. And some of it, we don't even know what it will be. And the Russell Center Innovation is there to elevate economic mobility. But we hope that we can also be a place that we can really have those hard social economic discussions. Because that's mm-hmm. the only way we can we have to be able to deal with them, we have to be able to talk about them. Some of these things are very uncomfortable discussion. So when it's uncomfortable, sometimes people avoid conflict. I thought it would be helpful if we did a little bit of an update since we last talked on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting you and your organization, your your colleagues, and your business. Well, um, it's been a kind of a mixed bag. Um, we have kind of four buckets of enterprises that we um, own and operate. And the biggest, and those four buckets are airport concessions, real estate, um, uh, construction, and property management services. And we also control a bank, a community bank, and our nonprofit uh, initiative called the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So the entity that has been most severely impacted has been our um, 
uh, airport concession business. Um, and right now we're out of the crisis mode and we're in what I call the next mode and trying to figure out how to go from next to beyond. Um, so that's that particular business. I'm not engaged in it day to day, but we talk about it literally every day. And uh, I would compare it to um, if we were a tenant in a large, probably mall. Um, that's what airport concessions is because we literally lease the space, we make the improvements, and then we pay rent to the airport. So I would assume um, the beyond is in that is a uh, much reduced uh, footprint for the next probably two to three years. And hopefully it starts to grow, you know, get back up to 2019 levels, but we don't anticipate that to happen probably for another three to four years. Um, on the real estate side, uh, we're skewed more in multifamily. Um, we have one hotel in our portfolio that has created some angst uh, for us because we don't know exactly how and when it's gonna come back. Um, we also have a building that we own where we had a large restaurant, which we were the owner of the restaurant. So we have to figure out how we come back in that. Fortunately, since we control the real estate, we can, you know, you know, structure a deal that works for the real estate and works for us. But we don't know what that looks like right now. Um, the rest of our real estate is doing okay. I would say we're in the uh, 90% economic collections. Um, you know, a lot of askew affordable. So HUD, uh, our HUD, HUD portfolio is fine. And our conventional portfolio is doing okay. You know, we got, we're keeping our eyes on it. Uh, most of our real estate loans are government um, uh, secured loans or bank loans so we don't we're not exposed in the um cmbs the commercial mortgage backed security market we have one asset that has that and you know it's definitely different in trying to find someone to talk to about that mm -hmm. so how we're dealing with that is we're just going ahead and paying our debt service and uh running the projections out and just watching the asset Hopefully, we're able to generate enough cash flow to uh, handle it. We also pursued the PPP. We were successful in getting funds for the PPP. That's just a Band-Aid that doesn't solve the problem. Um, we've done deferments. Again, those are just Band-Aids that we're dealing with. So we're looking at everything and trying to determine what it looks like in the future. Um, our bank, I can give you a little insight uh, from the community bank, uh, we had our board meeting um, the other day, and the CEO says, "I'm going to take all the fee income we generated from the PPP and put it in reserves." Um, so we're anticipating that uh, um, that we're going to need to double to our reserves. Uh, because we do have some hotel exposure. 
And uh, so I think banks, I think most banks are, are pretty well capitalized uh, because of the um, last recession. Um, but we just don't know where those values are going to come out in the next 90, 120 days as we get into the future. Um, you know, so if they come in at 50% of where they are now, we got a problem. Hopefully, they come in around 70, 80%. We just don't know. So that's kind of where we are. Um, um, we, we're fortunate that we are, uh, we, we, we as a overall institution or family groups of companies, we were not over leveraged. So we are uh, not under any stress, but we're not generating any uh, cash right now. So right now it's just trying to maintain and not go in it, go in the wrong way. And um, the, uh, we're gonna have to restructure probably our airport facility um, because I just don't see that, that we can sustain um, um, that without a restructure. Okay. What's your, um, what's your outlook? in terms of your expectation for how we um, gradually come out of this. Our, you know, our CLCO is being, we think that, um, you know, there's potential for us to, to see the market uh, improving by the fourth quarter and then, you know, slowly, uh, you know, returning to, you know, positive growth in 2021 through throughout 2021 and, uh, you know, gradually, getting back uh, you know, closer where we were in some, some sectors by the end of 2021. What's your, what's your are, are you uh, putting together in your business plans um, different timing than that or similar timing? Similar. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, two years out from today, so 2022, May of 2022, hopefully we're back to you know 90 percent to 100 percent of where we are today in say economic velocity mm -hmm. um i think it's going to be slow this year mm -hmm. um and i think once there's clarity around the, the vaccine and how we um kind of populate and how all the social distancing and how the curb looks is there another outbreak so um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty until we get the vaccine or until there's some type of medical procedures that um, kind of put some level of control over the uh, the virus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to take the rest of this year. So I, I see it stagnant this year and hopefully we start getting some light, as you said, in the fourth quarter mm -hmm. of this year. And then it just progressively hopefully gets better in 20. 21. And none of us know, know for sure. Um, I'm wondering, um, have you made any changes to how you're operating since uh, Governor Kemp said, you know, there's, you know, sort of Georgia is, is um, you know, not as shut down as it was before. Did, did that change anything that you're doing with your organization or mm. your personnel? Uh, no. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, we, we were interviewed by 
one of the TV stations about Pascals, and of course, we're not, we have no plans in opening up because the problem on it is, is that, you know, you're going to have to have uh, um, distant, you know, social distance, distancing. You're going to have a certain number of people. It's, it's, I don't know how, you know, the, that model is sustainable. So I don't see how it works. Now, maybe if you're a small location that maybe is, you know, a 20 seater and you maybe have a bar, I, I don't know, but we don't, a, a, a larger restaurant or a larger facility, I don't know how you sustain under these current rules. That are in place. Thing I, so. uh, I saw that uh, a lot of restaurants are doing is um, taking advantage of their parking lot space and mm -hmm. uh, and serving outside, sort of becoming food trucks in a way, and, uh, yeah. and serving outside, basically putting some tables out where people can sit and bringing the food out there. Since you know re restaurants tend to have uh, excess of of parking uh, due to requirements, mm -hmm. so that that's one. That's issue. interesting. Yeah, and I think I think you I think you will start seeing innovation around that. So who knows? Somebody may come up with something really unique, and if your facility works, uh, I think that will be cool. Um, air tra air air travel. Hold on here. Sorry here. Okay, air travel. I think is something we just got to keep keep our eyes on closely. I mean, we're very in tune with that, but Delta mention um that they see their load factor only at 20 percent um this Current. year yeah so right now they're probably on passenger loads it's probably less than five percent so they don't see it getting back this year and i understand they're taking out the middle seats or they're just not going to sell the middle seats so if you just look at it from that perspective, that's 70% capacity. That's all they can get up to this year. And even with that, I don't think that they're going to be able to hit that. And then if that's the case, ticket prices are going to go up, which is going to make it more difficult for people to travel. Well, I see because um, we have the opportunity to be actively involved with you and some of the, the planning that you're doing that, you are forging ahead with uh, with plans with with some of the the assets that you have that where you're looking to uh, to do uh, development in the future. So my impression is that on the real estate side, all the the planning work you're doing is continuing, and you're still um, teeing up projects and that you know, in anticipation of uh, I guess in 2021 and and beyond of their being some return to the market, you know, with, with uh, opportunities for for sale, residential and, and, and rental apartments and things. Yeah, I'm trying to time it to where I delivered in 2022. So that's kind of the game plan. I may be on the market, but I'm at, I mean, we all know that it's pent up demand. You know, the, there is plenty of liquidity in the marketplace, plenty of capital but that capital is not going to be deployed until there's a pathway. So we think 2022 is hopefully that time period where you want to kind of be hitting the market with your product. So that's kind of how I'm viewing it. And hopefully I'm reading it right. You know, it may not be, but uh, I think, and then I also feel residential, whether it's multifamily or for sale, 
is fundamentally um, a need. I think it's an essential need. Uh, I do have some concern about uh, income and wealth disparity that's about to unfold. So I think there are going to be different classes. I think we're going to see a new class of housing. Um, and I think that class will be between that 60% of median and maybe 100% of median. Um, so, and I think there's going to have to be some level of support from the feds, um, states, and local municipalities. Um, and really, if there's anything that really, really concerns me, is that we're we're not going to get back to those uh, unemployment rates that we were down to, you know, the 3% or 4%, you know, I just think there's going to be a lot of individuals who are not going to be able to be employed. So a lot of people who had sort of, you know, pulled themselves out of, uh, out of poverty and sort of got, got a leg up, mm -hmm. uh, you know, find themselves in as a result of the pandemic sort of back in those circumstances and, and with an unclear path to how they, pull themselves up and yeah yeah so uh so anyway that's um you know they call it kind of workforce housing um i think that will become a a really a defined class of housing both on the for sale side and the rental side mm -hmm. and um we are sensitive to that and uh how it plays out i don't know but uh um, you know, what here in Metro Atlanta, I think median is what around 60,000 for, for what family of two. Is that about right? Yeah. So, so there's going to be a lot of people not making households that, you know, they're not going to be able to make that 60,000 price range. Yeah, the, well, I, I don't, to the degree that the last recession gives us any mm -hmm. insight, um, household formation slowed down a lot coming out of the last mm -hmm. recession, particularly among mm -hmm. younger households. And there were, uh, you know, stories written about people, you know, staying at home, moving back in with mom and dad and staying there for a long time. One difference, and, and you, you survived the last recession, and going into that last recession, we had a lot of oversupply. This time, if anything, we were undersupplying the market, particularly at the more moderate mm -hmm. end, so that, that demand, you know, you know, when jobs come back, that, that demand should still be there. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, so it should be interesting. It should be interesting. But people have to live. I mean, we have to have some level of shelter. So I think that fundamentally will be a, you know, a, a predictable market is residential. Mm -hmm. So I'm comfortable in kind of, you kind of mentioned the uh the uh, project that we're working together on is i'm comfortable in you know really kind of pointing in in that and i do feel that there will be capital sources who would see that and buy in on that also so uh, that's why we're, yeah. yeah yeah so you're you have diverse uh businesses um your residential is one of the sectors you've seen most bullish about the residential just because it's a basic need and, and we didn't go into this downturn oversupplied. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. Yep. 
totally agree with you on that. So that, and I think that's why we're seeing the collections um, hold up. Um, and I think they will. I think they I think they will. And you know, if somebody's in trouble, I think if they're truly in trouble, I think landlords will work with work with those individuals to try to keep them because they don't have anywhere to go, and you don't want to. You know, it's easy to keep them than to Replay. lose them and have to release. So. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling turnover is going to be a bit suppressed for a while. Um, yeah. Well, thank thank you again for uh, for being with us, and uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll check in again in a month <laughs> or so and see how our predictions are holding up. And we'll, Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Greg. For all, thank you for all the stuff that you're doing um, in in the community, and you know, just staying focused on what you do the best. So appreciate that. Thank you. Sam, too. Appreciate the opportunity to work with you and, and uh, continued good luck. We'll All right. Through, Thank right? You. All right. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.